Good morning, all. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, it's great to be with you. We got some babies in the house this morning, some for the first time, at least one of them. And uh, they'll be running the joint here in a year or two, so we're glad to have, have them with us always. Psalm 90, 17. May the favor of the Lord rest upon us, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That's what we've been exploring, a people for whom God is establishing. We've been, we've been trekking with an ancient people, an enslaved people, 400 years enslaved. You know, you live that long in slavery, a people, a whole culture gets created among you, that whole way of thinking about life, a whole way of looking at life, a world view. It's not easy to come out of those ways of thinking, but this people has been delivered. They're free, at least politically. Not much else politically, they're free. Now they've got to learn how to actually live free. That's their challenge. You know, the great church planter Paul had that challenge too. He planted these little Jesus communities all over the ancient Near East. And um, they had all kinds of slavery in their lives. And um, one of them was Galatia. They, they had the slavery of legalism. And Paul wrote once, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. And so stand firm. Don't go back to those ways. Don't let yourself be in bondage again by a yoke of slavery. So we've been migrating with these people for 3,500 years ago. Not for 3,500 years, uh, 3,500 years ago. They've migrated out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea. God's been providing for them food, water, but not just substance, also law. God's trying to help them learn how to live. He's trying to help them become free. So he's given this incredible gift called law, started with the Ten Commandments up on the mountain. The whole time God's given Moses the Ten Commandments, the people down at the bottom of the mountain dancing around fires and melting their jewelry down and building golden calves, going right back to the gods of Egypt. That's what was going on. So this is going to be a challenge, learning how to become a free people. It's actually a challenge for us, too, learning how to become a free person, to live our lives as if Jesus would, who was a completely free person, if he were us. That, that's really our quest. God's given them law because he knows something. He knows if, that they don't learn the, learn the way of obedience, of, of law, then they won't know how to learn, live free. He knows that, so he's starting with law. God just told them, I'll establish your borders. I'm going to give land to you. I'm going to give you a place for your people. In fact, he's also said, you are my people. So now going forward, increasing measure, he's going to try to help them see how to live free. That's our quest. Exodus 24, that's where we're at. We're going to read good bit of that chapter this morning. And we're going to try to, I want you to try to imagine yourself in the middle of this narrative. It's really a spectacular narrative, although 
I have to admit, it took me several reps to see it that way, first few reps. I wasn't really sure what to do with it. That's the way it goes sometimes. You have to look deeper often in order to start to discover the meaning. Well, let's stand together this morning. Just a way of kind of honoring God's Word. We'll do it with our physical presence this morning. So if you can stand, stand with us. It goes this way. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone may approach the Lord. The others must not. And the people may not come up with him either. So Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, and they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. So Moses wrote it down, everything the Lord had said. The next morning he got up early. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And he set up twelve stone pillars, representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men. They offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls. The other half he splashed against the altar. And then he took the book of covenant and he read it to the people. And they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. So Moses took the blood, he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, bright and blue as a sky. God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I'll give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I've written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up the mountain. He said to the elders, wait here till we come back. Aaron and Hur are in charge. Anyone involved in his view can go to them. Then Moses went up the mountain, and a cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. So for six days, the cloud covered the mountain. Moses waited. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a fire consuming them on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud, went up the mountain, and he stayed there for 40 days and 40 nights. How'd you like that? Let's pray. God, would you take these words that were written so long ago to a very different people, very different culture, people that had known nothing but slavery, politically free for the first time, now trying to learn how to be personally free, to be relationally, socially, spiritually free. 
It's going to be a challenge. Lord, we find ourselves in the story right there. You have set us free through Jesus giving his life. How often we go back to our old ways. Not just ways of behavior, but but thinking as well. Even feeling. So God, teach us. Just as you were trying to do that, people, during that time, may we be good students. May we learn from them as well. Most of all, may we learn from you. We sit at your feet under your word this morning. It's a privilege that we have. It's a gift you've given us. Thank you for the gift. So we, we are here with open hands and open ears. We look to you. May your spirit guide us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. So this whole story starts with an invitation. God summons Moses. And he says, come up to the Lord. You and Aaron, Aaron's his right hand at this point, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders. So there's 74 of them going up the mountain. And God's inviting these leaders up to the mountain, not really for law. I mean, that's, they're going to get to that. The law will get its due attention. But he's really inviting them up for worship. The invitation to them is to enter the presence of God. So what, what's about to happen here is pretty unusual during that day for them. God says, Moses alone is to approach me. When we get to that point, he says, Moses, you have to come by yourself at that point. Their others must not come near. That was fine with them, by the way. Everybody else has already been begging Moses to talk for God. You go talk to God, then you come tell us what he says. We'll just stay back here. So they were okay with that. Moses had a very different kind of relationship with God. The Bible tells us that Moses talked to God like a friend. Like a friend sitting down face to face, it says in one place. That's the kind of relationship we aspire to with God. Is it not? Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws. This is what spiritual leaders do, what His job was, he was to hear God, discern the voice of God, listen for the voice of God, be with the voice of God, let it do its work in him, through him, let it, if needed, wreck him, and then go speak those words to people. He had to do the work of how do I communicate what God has told me to the people. That was his job. We call that proclamation. He's proclaiming God's word. Proclamation, there's something interesting about proclamation. It always makes a demand, proclamation. It demands a response from us. That's why it's not just teaching. It's proclamation. When God's word is proclaimed, he always asks. He makes us uncomfortable. He makes us wiggle sometimes. Sometimes he deeply encourages us with proclamation. But it demands a response, and so... God got one. It says the people respond with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, 
we will do. That's a big statement, isn't it? Everything God says, you can count on it. Put it in the bank. Pause for a minute. It's kind of cool. Worship, proclamation, response. Kind of what we do in here on Sunday mornings. Isn't that cool? Still going on. Worship, proclamation, response. So Moses realized this is something meaningful happening, and he starts marking it. He starts memorializing it. He wants future generations even to know what's going on. He's, he wants to put down a stake in this moment. So he starts doing that. He starts with writing. Moses writes down everything the Lord has said. Literally all the words of God. That's how the text reads. So he starts with the Ten Commandments. But there's actually been more law being given after the Ten Commandments. They're really more unpacking the Ten Commandments. They're in chapters 21, 22, and 23 of Exodus. You might want to read those. If you do, there's going to be some laws you're going to read that are really going to bother you. They're going to be awkward. You're going to have to figure out what to do with them. Read them, you'll see it. Uh, He's going to say things about their servants, their slaves. He's going to talk about their daughters in a way that's not going to be very comfortable for you to read. In fact, there's a lot of that in the Old Testament. We read it and we go, I don't know what to do with it. So what we do sometimes is we just skip those parts. And that's not the kind of culture we want around here, that we skip the parts that we don't like or make us uncomfortable. But we lean into them and try to learn. So what do we do with, with passages <coughs> excuse me, that talk about how to, how to treat your female slaves, for example? What do we do with that stuff? Because if we just take some of it at face value, we're going to start forming an impression of God. That he's some kind of misogynist, maybe, or he's just mean, or he's out of touch. And... A lot of people have done that. So what do we do? Well, we start by seeking to understand rather than drawing conclusions. We try to understand the people and the culture and the time in which God is speaking. Because God always speaks when he speaks into the context that he's speaking. To the people specifically in the place and the time that's there. So we seek to learn those times and places. In fact, we should never lose sight of that principle. Because God's Word can never mean what it never meant. That's a basic principle of learning to read God's Word. You have to understand what it meant to those people. And then you also have to do the work of trying to discern why God said it. That's not always easy. Sometimes it's really clear. Sometimes we don't really know. We take our best effort. But we're not sure. As we look at the natural progression, it's called the progression of revelation in Scripture, we see, we we discover a principle. And the principle is this. God is always not pushing people down, but moving them forward. Always. doesn't matter what state they're in. Whether they're a slave in that culture, and we have that in the New Testament as well, by the way. Slavery was prominent in the Roman world. The New Testament came to birth then. Or whether we see it in a minority group, 
in women that had a very different place in culture and society. When not just the old, but when the New Testament was written. We've got to do the work to find out how is God speaking specifically into this time and place. One of the things we discover is that God is always advancing and promoting these people. He's never trying to keep his thumb on them. That really helps when you learn that. It doesn't always help us completely understand what's going on. There's some hard passages. But it does help us to know that God is for people. And he specifically, and here's where we see this most clearly, is in the life of Jesus. He's always for people who are on the, the fringes, who are the minority, who are being oppressed, who are being not seen, who are being left out, who aren't being empowered. God, Jesus especially was always for them. So we learn this about God. Every book in the Bible, all 66 of them, was written to particular people and place and time. It doesn't mean there aren't timeless principles in them. Don't, don't mishear me. But they were always written to a particular time and place and people. We have to do the work and do our best job. So in the church, there are some people who have training to help us with that. But you know what? You get to read your Bible all by yourself, too. So you can do the work as well, and you can study. So you don't always have to go on something just because Jim said it or someone else up here said it. You can always do the work and check it out for yourself. So you're not off the hook necessarily. But Moses is marking and memorializing in writing what's going on, but not just in writing. He's also doing it in stone. Moses got up the next morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain. Now, there was nothing particularly new about this for the people. Altar came from ancient pagan religions. They had altars. It, it, it kind of has a threefold meaning of an altar. The word just kind of means a high spot, a tall structure. It also carried the meaning of approach. Enter, come and go. It was a place where you approached. And it also had the meaning of offering. So a high place where you approached and offered something on it. And so over time, this came to mean to the gods in ancient pagan religion. They would offer offerings to their gods. So Moses is using a symbol that his people who had been enslaved were familiar with. And he did it. It's interesting, back in chapter 20, uh, God gives Moses some instructions about how to build an altar. He said, if you build an altar, don't make it fancy. You can read it yourself. It's the end of chapter 20. It's right after the Ten Commandments. Use regular old rock for it. Use dirt. Don't make the altar something people might be tempted to worship itself. It's supposed to point to me. So Moses got up and he did just that. He used rocks and dirt and he built an altar. The altar was an important symbol. The altar represented God. It was where the people would go and approach God. That's what he's doing. A covenant is getting ready to be made. People don't know this yet. There's getting ready to be an agreement. You, maybe our word 
would be contract. It's not quite capture it, but it's close, close enough. The altar represents the God part of the covenant, the agreement that's getting ready to be brokered between God and his people. Then, Moses says, he set up 12 stone pillars representing the people. 12 tribes. These, at this point, we don't know exactly what that means because there weren't technically 12 tribes yet. They hadn't been formed in that way yet. They were somehow already gathering um, demographically, culturally into different groups. So, He's making 12 stone pillars. By the way, there's been some pretty good geological work done on this. I'm, I'm always pretty suspicious when people find like you know, Noah's Ark and those kinds of things. But I did a little research on this one. There's been some pretty good work done on where they think this took place uh, near Mount Sinai. And uh, there, there's some actually some stuff that's been dug up that it looks like it was right here. We don't know for sure. Nobody knows for sure, but you can check that out. I think if you go on the website, um, Doubting Thomas Foundation, that's what it's called. You can find that work. That's kind of their quest is like the whole this part of the Bible to kind of figure out uh, where, where this happened. So you can check it out. So he sets up an altar representing God, and then he has the pillars representing the people. Make sense? getting ready to forge a covenant. Then it says Moses sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings. Burnt offerings signified two things. The forging of a relationship made possible through atonement. The forging of a relationship made possible through atonement. We'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. We'll say quite a bit more about that in a minute. Secondly, it signified total commitment by the worshipers. So a reconciliation and a total commitment to that reconciliation. That was kind of the big meanings of a burnt offering. Also, these young men sacrificed young bulls, cows, as a fellowship offering to the Lord. Now, fellowship offerings are a little bit different. They were, they're actually a subset of offerings. The bigger offering was called a peace offering. A peace offering brought reconciliation. It signified reconciliation. The fellowship offering was the part of the peace offering you could eat. Here's why. The fellowship offering was eaten because it represented a joint meal in that day, often a feast between the two parties who were entering a contractual or covenant relationship. So part of the peace offering that we, they would take, they would eat it as a way of like celebrating. It's a little bit, it's a little bit like uh, the Europeans that came to America and the Native Americans smoking a peace pipe. That's what this was like. They had a meal together. Back up just a little bit. Do you notice who's doing these offerings? Did you catch it? It's not Moses. It's not Aaron who becomes priest. All we're told is young men. Young men did it. And the rendering of the language there appears that it's just like, these aren't like special, like 
set aside leaders of the community. Moses goes and grabs some young bucks by the collar and says, you're going to do the burnt offering. So you high school guys stand up there. So he went and grabbed these guys by the collar. Go ahead, Zach, stand up. Kale, yeah. So he went and got some young men. He said, guess what you're going to go do? Go kill a bull, and then you're going to sacrifice him. All right, you guys can. I'm not done with you yet, but uh, we'll. Question for a couple of responses. Why do you think he did that? We're not told why. He grabbed some guys by the collar, some young men. He didn't, we're not really told why he didn't do it, while Aaron didn't do it. Was it just because he was old and he didn't want to kill a bull? He got young men. Any, any thoughts out there? It's not a rhetorical question, by the way. You can... If you have one, share it. You don't have to have one, but if you have one, shout it out. Good. Yeah, Ryan, that's a great thought right there. They were the future leaders. Good. Yeah, esoteric, good word. It's impressive. So, yeah, he's involving the next generation, the young generation, as a way of saying, hey, own this. So stand back, back up, guys. Before go ahead, stand back up. So, so like one of the things I told our rhyme group or youth group when it first started was, um, you're not little kids anymore, and and you are now a responsible part of this community, and you have obligations here in this community. We're we're not here just to make sure you're fed and happy. You have, you have a responsibility. Uh, if you're under 30, stand up. Just, just patronize me. It's okay. I'm not making you do anything weird. So, more than half the room, <laughs> so more than half the room is now standing, probably two-thirds. A couple of you are getting ready to turn 30. I happen to know that. So, Moses is singling out your generation and saying, I, I mean, this is, I don't know, it's speculation, okay? But he's, he's, he's grabbing you guys by the collar and saying, step up. It, it's time for you to carry this thing. It's time for you to own this thing. It's time for you to bear the weight of it and, and live up to what I've called you to do. So I think, personally, that's what Moses is doing. And, uh, and I thank God that so many of you are already. Okay, you can have a seat. So that wasn't, pain, that wasn't very painful, was it, to stand there? <clears throat> now I want you to see what happens next. Because what happens next is really, it's, it's the sober part of, of this passage. It's, the, it's a sober part in the history of this people. It's a sacred part of our history. Moses put half of the blood in bowls. The other half he splashed on the altar. So he's got a bowl. I have a bowl here. I don't have cow blood in it. Just water. Sorry. Yeah. It's pretty disappointing. 
But uh, he took some, and he had the altar over here, and he splashed it on there. Why is he doing that? Well, blood, blood is the, and it was considered this in antiquity. That's why we see blood used for ancient rites. It was seen as the stuff of life. It, it's the, the vehicle, maybe is one word, of life. The flowing instrument, the flowing essence, element of life. And in God's economy, he understands it, it was created by him. God created the chemicals that went into blood. He made blood. And so as this altar, this stone, common stone pile of rock and dirt is there, Moses takes that blood and he splashes it against there. He's demonstrating the depth and the seriousness of what's about to happen. Blood was spilled for this moment. An animal's life was given. It was costly. So Moses sprinkles blood on the altar, and then he takes the book of the covenant, that Exodus 20 to 23 that we got, and he reads it. Right there beside the altar. Right there with the blood on the altar. That reminder to the people that life has been given for this moment. And he reads them in the book of the covenant. A lot, but it took a while. He reads it. And they respond. We will do everything you have just read. We will obey. This is the second time they've said it. This time it's different. This time their words are spoken in the midst of this blood ritual. It's one thing just to say words. We do that all the time. It's another thing to say them in the middle of an, a sacrifice. Of a living thing that has just been given. An animal's life has been taken. It's on the altar. The blood is bearing witness to their words. It's screaming out. Your, we will do everything we have heard. Now, Moses takes the blood again. You know what he does with it? We read it. He takes it. And he stands in the middle of the people. And he sprinkles it on them. Yeah, he starts sprinkling the blood on people. It starts splashing on them. It's kind of awkward. He's, he's, he's putting it on them. This is an incredibly sober moment for the people. I would imagine it got real quiet. People sitting there with blood on them. This was a sign to them. The sprinkling of blood meant something. They had just given their word. It's one thing to see the blood on the altar. That was God's part. They just given their word. And it cost this 
animal that could feed a family for a long time, that could give, allow a lot of cows to be born, it's life, and it's on them now. The cow's gone, but the blood's still there, this vehicle. And this was a sign of atonement. Atonement. If you break the word down, here's what it means. At one month. Atonement. Atonement meant reconciliation. That's what it meant. It meant atonement in the blood, this tangible, flowing issue of life. It's now sprinkled on the people, this presence of this breathing beast is on them. And it's symboling not a cow. It's symbolizing God is sharing His life with us. God who created that life. Reconciliation is being enacted. A coming together of people and God. It's entered this powerful, sacred act. People sitting there, standing there with blood on them. Atonement. Sprinkling of blood was also a sign of purification. The blood representing the life of God is on them. And it has the meaning of cleansing them from impurity. Maybe it's a little bit like Not a great analogy, but maybe a little bit like someone who has diseased blood getting a transfusion. God's blood is on them and it represents something, that they're different. They've not just like joined hands. In the process of joining hands, they've become something different. They're now purified. They're different. Holy. And the holiness kind of cascades out because the blood doesn't just mean pure, it means consecrated. Set apart. Set aside for a purpose. Commissioned. The people are like being ordained, if you like that word, into the service of God. They've been made right with God. They've been made holy And they're being set aside. God had already been echoing this theme to them. Just a few chapters back in Exodus 19. He says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Oh, the whole earth is mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests. There's the commissioning. And a holy nation. And we're going we're to circle back to that in just a minute. Before we do, I want us to see one more thing that happens. So Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, they, and the 70 elders, they went up. And they saw the God of Israel. And we don't really know what to do with that. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire. As bright blue as the sky. 
God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. These four guys saw God. Boy, did they ever. Don't miss the shock factor. There's an unusual kind of radiance about this moment. It's a sapphire street. It's as clear and blue as the sky. It goes. It's radiant because it's God. So what's interesting about this, this is not like someone coming in God's presence and it's kind of like, you know, dark and mysterious and, and kind of smoky. It's not heavy. These leaders have been granted an audience with God. And it's the context of a bright, sunny feast. See, we're, we're tempted to think that the God of the Old Testament, the one that Isaiah saw, the one that Moses begged to see, we struggle to interpret what a meal with God might look like. We can imagine like an angel sliding their food under the door as God walks by, or a very, very, very long table with God at the other side kind of looking away. I don't know what it looked like, just to be clear. What I am saying is that this is what the passage is communicating. It was radiant and bright. And these men, and, 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 and the author goes out of his way to say God did not raise his hand against these men. He's telling us something. This was a joyous occasion. Not one that they walked away and say, what's going to happen to me? I'm ruined. He tells us, they ate and they drank. A meal, belonging, closeness, family. Is that God in your worldview? Is He in your mind? They were in God's presence in this unique way and they were not in danger. God does not raise his hand. This is a, be excuse me, a beautiful picture of drawing these men in and displaying his presence. That's what our hearts long for. Community with God. Now, I want to visit, we'll, we'll close with this, another meal. And I hope it has the effect in, in maybe a few small ways, maybe meaningful ways to you, tying some of this together. I want to, I want to fast forward 1,500 years to a meal. A meal that Jesus is observing with his disciples. A meal that kind of ironically, for our purposes, celebrates the Exodus. It's Passover time. Jesus is having the Passover meal. We've had Passover meals uh, before around Easter. They're commemorating the Passover, God's delivering His people out of slavery. And in the middle of that meal, Jesus takes bread. He gives thanks for it. He breaks it. And He gives it around the table. Take and eat. This is my body. And then he takes the cup. And when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them. Drink from it. 
all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the covenant, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take it. As Moses sprinkled the blood on the people, the flowing element of life, the blood of the old covenant, the law, the covenant of law, the blood that signified atonement, purification, consecration, but it had this caveat, always this caveat, if you obey me. It was always conditional. If you will keep the law. Now he's saying, take and drink this cup. Receive my blood, my life, which this very night will be given freely for you. It will be spilled. To reconcile you to God. To make you holy. To set you apart. And to commission you as my kingdom of priests. My ambassadors to the ends of the earth. Receive the blood of a new covenant. He says. A new covenant foretold by the prophet Jeremiah. When he says I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, because they already will. They'll know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness. No conditions. And I will remember their sins no more. Those who place their trust and confidence in me, that will be the obedience. I did... A little bit of study this week on the New Testament witnessing to the blood of Jesus. It, i got to tell you, it was overwhelming to me. I, I wept when I read it several times. Just, just kind of entering what the Bible says about the blood of Christ. About the new covenant. It's abundant. There were dozens and dozens of references. I'm going to close by reading eight or nine of them. And, I, and I, I just want this time to really kind of represent our, our really our response time. Ben, if you want to come on up, you in the room, Ben, you guys can come on up, and you're welcome to pray, because I want, I want this to be God's Word over us, that we're under it, and giving the opportunity just to be with these words about the blood of Christ. We're not, we're not doing communion today. We may do it next week, but I want you to really... Take in what you've heard today about blood, about God's life being given, about Jesus' blood being spilled. And Ben, you can go ahead and play just whenever you're ready, just quietly. In Romans it says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood. To be received by faith. In Ephesians, Paul wrote, In Him we have redemption. We've been bought through His blood. We've received the forgiveness of sins. You're actually right with God. In accordance with the riches of God's grace. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, it says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away 
the end of the table from God. You've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Friend, brother, sister. Colossians 1.20, through Him, God reconciled all things to Himself. Whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Hebrews, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, how much more will it clean our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Hebrews writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Peter writes, You've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of His Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Get this, sprinkled with His blood. And that purifies us from all sin. If we walk in the light, John writes, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us. And finally, in the last book, the book that looks forward, the book of Revelation. There's a group of elders. Maybe there's 70 of them. I can't remember. But they're singing. They're singing a new song. They're singing it to Christ. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals. No one was found to be worthy until the... Christ stepped forward, the Lamb of God. They said, you're worthy to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. 